super friends, my name is Neil and welcome to this episode 104 of the Get Your Comic Con podcast. We're here fortnightly-ish to bring you a slice of film, TV and pop culture goodness from our studio direct to your listening device or to your screen if you are watching us on YouTube. Thank you to those of you who have joined in. This week I'm going to be rounding up some of the biggest news from across the worlds of film, TV, comic books, etc. I'm also going to be reviewing not one but two horror movies that you can check out right now on either cinemas or on streaming. I'm also going to talk to you about a couple of comic books and I have some exciting stuff to tell you about that is coming up in the very near future. So without further ado, let's head over to the news. First up in the news this week, Paramount Home Entertainment has now finally released Transformers Rise of the Beasts on DVD, Blu-ray and 4K UHD in the UK. You can pick it up, as I just said, on all formats, including two really beautiful steelbook editions that are available as well. It comes with a whole host of bonus features, which I'm going to read out to you now. It includes featurettes such as human affairs in the world of robots, machines and aliens. We explore the humans who help save the world. Life in the 90s, a look at the filmmakers discussing how the music, set design, fashion and cultural references transport viewers to new York in the 1990s. Heroes get an inside look at the inspiration and thought process behind designing the Autobots and the Maximals. Villains looking at the opposing characters, the Terracons and the Predacons. The Chase, where we meet Mirage, a new Autobot that converts into a 1993 Porsche and experience an adrenaline-filled car chase through New York City. There's also the Battle of Ellis Island, taking a closer look at that scene, Into the Jungle, where they head over to the exotic location of Peru and we follow the cast and crew as they're filming there, the Switchback Attack, Uh, witness the wild, intense driving sequences filmed on location in Peru where the Autobots fight the Terracons through a town square and into the mountains 15,000 feet up. The final conflict, where we take a closer look at the film's epic climax, there are also extended and deleted scenes. Those are all available on the digital 4K and Blu-ray edition. The DVD uh, release includes Human Affairs and Life in the 90s and The Chase. Don't forget that when Transformers Rise of the Beasts hit cinemas, James was able to sit down with three of the film's cast as well as producer and its director, and you can check out all of his interviews now over on our YouTube channel. Just head to youtube.com and search for Get Your Comic Con. The brilliant horror documentary series In Search of Darkness has released a brand new trailer for its latest chapter, which will take the film into what is known as the lost decade of horror, the 1990s. The latest chapter in the story is called In Search of Darkness 1990-1994, and it comes after over 14 hours of the greatest lineup of 80s horror talent ever assembled. So with that trilogy complete, we, uh, we know that horror never dies, so now the early 90s are represented in this new, exciting, challenging and evolutionary period for horror filmmaking. Yet it kind of does remain curiously underappreciated by many, uh, which is why it's known as The Lost Decade. So this new documentary, of which you can check out the trailer over on our website, features exclusive interviews with horror film icons and experts. It will dive into this amazing era to shape personal and candid observations, experiences and analysis to help deconstruct, recontextualise and reframe this fascinating period in time in filmmaking history. I don't believe they have announced all of the contributors yet for this brand new one. So uh, I recommend you go and check out the trailer because let's just think about 90s, shall we? Scream, I Know What You Did Last Summer, more Hellraiser, did no, Saw didn't begin that early on. There's so many horror movies from a lot of the legendary franchises that were releasing sequels at that point. But there is just, there's a lot of horror and 90s horror is genuinely very underrated and can be very very expressive and very very 
I'm not going to necessarily say well-made because some of it can be quite cheap, but it's certainly a very interesting decade and it's going to be cool to see them digging into that and seeing what they can get from it. So please do go head over to the website www.getyourcomicon.co.uk look for in search of darkness you can always search it into the search feature and you'll be able to find the trailer for the uh for the latest chapter and also there you will find all the details on how to pre-order in search of darkness 1990 to 1994 which will be coming very very soon and stay tuned for more details on it as we get closer to the release and finally in the news this week boom studios has announced that it's had a very very successful launch for the first issue of its brand new power rangers spin-off series ranger academy ranger academy number one which hit comic book stores and digital platforms last week has sold out at distributor level and will be returning in a few weeks time on november the 1st with a second printing and some brand new cover artwork in case you are not familiar with ranger academy uh, the series follows 13 year old sage who lives on an isolated lunar colony with her adopted father but her days on the farm will change forever when she comes across a wreckage with wounded passengers people from an academy training to be something called power rangers for the first time discover an amazing school where rangers are made now i have read the first issue i didn't review it dave reviewed it over on our website he gave it a full five stars and said a promising story with a fresh feel and a different spin on a multiverse we know and love a welcome addition to the ranger world I have since read the book and it's really really cool it's very very fun and it's an interesting new way into the power rangers universe through some slightly younger characters through an aspect that we've never really seen before in that there is now this school that is shaping the rangers of tomorrow so it's an it's a very interesting new take and not just kind of regurgitating things that we may have seen before in various versions of the show so I highly recommend that you go check it out. You should, in theory, be able to find the last few remaining copies of the first printing of Ranger Academy Number 1 in comic book stores now, or you can pick it up on digital. Otherwise, if you are happy to wait around until November the 1st, then you can pick up the second printing, which features new cover artwork by Alicia Sanchez, and you can see that cover artwork over on our website now. That is it for the news this week. If you want to keep up to date with all of the latest stories, then make sure to head to the website, which is www.getyourcomicon.co.uk. And for the latest breaking stories, do make sure to also follow us on social media. We're on all major platforms at Get Your Comic Con. Now, let's get on with some film reviews. First up on the film review slate this week is The Exorcist Believer. The film is currently in UK cinemas from uh, Universal Pictures and is directed by David Gordon Green. Quick synopsis. So since the death of his pregnant wife in a Haitian earthquake 12 years ago, Victor Fielding, played by Leslie Odom Jr., has raised their daughter Angela on his own. But when Angela and her friend Catherine disappear into the woods, only to return three days later with no memory of what happened to them, it unleashes a chain of events that will force Victor to confront the nadir of evil and, in his terror and desperation, seek out the only person who alive who has witnessed anything like it before, Chris McNeil. For the first time since 1973, uh, Oscar winner Ellen Bernstein reprises her iconic role as Chris McNeil, an actress who was forever altered by what happened to her daughter Reagan five decades before. And this film is releasing pretty much five decades almost to the day uh, from when the original Exorcist released in cinemas. Now, you can read my full review of this over on the website and it is, uh, it's spoiler-free and I will keep this relatively spoiler-free as well. Um, I want to keep it light and airy because we could get into some real minutiae here i think that there is some really good ideas to the exorcist believer it definitely contemporizes the kind of way the story is told in comparison to how it was done 50 years ago so this is a much more diverse cast 
it has a slightly different approach to building its human characters which means that there is maybe a little bit more to them a little bit more substance to them than we would have seen 50 years ago when perhaps it was more about let's introduce them and get straight into the horror of it all so the first act of this film does you know it starts in flashback to the Haitian earthquake we meet Victor when he's a little bit younger when he is newly married and his wife is pregnant we get to see the tragedy that leads up to the birth of Angela and then we catch up with them in the present day and spend a little bit of time with them before Angela and Catherine disappear and before all of the the supernatural elements start kind of coming into the story where I think that this film slips up is in firstly its atmosphere which is almost entirely lacking if you think back to the original exorcist the kind of first image that, that jumps into my mind is the famous poster with the kind of eerie street with the single street lamp and the and the priest um and if you look at the poster artwork for this film it's it's a shot of catherine as she's walking up the up the aisle in a church which is quite a striking image with the stained glass window of the the cross behind her and that is perhaps the most striking image in the whole film the rest of it is quite certainly in the first half to two-thirds of the film is quite mundane it's quite dull um only when it gets to the final act and to the actual exorcism itself do things really start to pick up and that bit is actually done very very well and i'll get to that in a second but in terms of the kind of the early parts of the story which was written by director david gordon green uh, scott teams and danny mcbride <coughs> um it just doesn't pop off the screen it's very much okay here is a man who has lost his wife he has a teenage daughter she misses her mum she wants to feel some kind of connection to her and in this case rather than kind of just rummaging through her things and and finding out who her mother is she for some reason decides to go into the woods with her friend Catherine and summon the dead um which you know it's crossed all of our minds now and again um and so that leads to this three-day disappearance and when Catherine and Angela reappear then they are um you know there is the slow descent into the realization that they have been possessed by Pazuzu who is the same demon from the original exorcist movies and what leads us to the exorcism itself so uh, I should say um, Angela is played by Lydia Jewett who is absolutely brilliant she plays both the possessed and unpossessed version of Angela incredibly well and Catherine is played by a newcomer called Olivia Markham, who again does a remarkable job of playing uh, the uh, possessed version of Catherine. We see a little bit less of her as the uh, the normal Catherine, the unpossessed Catherine. Now, herein lies a bit of an issue for me with this film in general, which is that it's Leslie Odom's character, uh, so Victor and, and Angela, who are our eyes and our entry point into this version of the story so you know we as i just said we meet him in the past then we catch up with him in the present day and it's through him that we we learn about angela and she then is the one that instigates the trip into the woods where the two girls disappear we don't meet Catherine's family until they have disappeared and, and victor is then wondering what's happened to his daughter yet for some reason the film's marketing has kind of sidelined angela a little bit and has used this image of Catherine, uh, which doesn't quite sit right with me especially just given how much Catherine is in the story but then when Catherine is possessed she is a a very big part of the story and has quite a huge impact so it's kind of swings and roundabouts in a way but I do think that there is a different balance in the marketing to the balance that's in the story in the film which is interesting to me but the setup in you know it does what it needs to do by the time the uh, the possessions have happened and we get to the exorcism you care enough about these girls and you certainly care about victor and his side of the of the story that um that you're able to root for them there is an interesting point at the story 
uh, in which the story kind of decides that it wants to make the audience kind of make a decision between these two girls, which is very difficult when we spent less time with one than the other. But that's probably a point of kind of personal perspective, maybe, on how you fall in the story. There's obviously some very heavy religious subtext going on throughout the film, though the message here is, uh, I, I would say, a little bit more muddled than it was in the original Exorcist. I think when you look back at that film 50 years ago, it had a very clear conviction to the idea of kind of good and evil and how good triumphs over evil. And here it's more of a, a general message about different religions working together there's a kind of avengers assemble moment where all these people from different religious backgrounds come together to help be part of the exorcism and it seems like what this story is trying to tell or the message that it's trying to put across is something which is more about kind of family and togetherness and it's it doesn't it doesn't impact as well as the as the story of the and the message of the original film does Obviously, this following the rules of Scream's requel um, is absolutely a story which pulls in from the past. It kind of I, I am not incredibly well versed in the original Exorcist sequels, so my understanding and from what I can remember and what I know of the original film, having watched that many times, is that this film is kind of pulling threads directly from the first film and sort of circumventing some of the rest of it. And so Chris McNeil is back, played by Ellen Bernstein, um, and that obviously has a connection to Reagan, played by Linda Blair, uh, and there is a presence of these characters in this film. Ellen Bernstein, absolutely brilliant actress, slightly underused, I would say, here. They bring her in for a, what is... I know some people think that it doesn't fit with who she is as a character from the original films, but in, just in terms of context of what we're given in this film, it works to bring her in. It works to bring her in, and then she is very quickly disposed of. Not completely, I might add. That's not a massive spoiler. She's kind of sidelined in the story after being brought in, which is very, very strange. You kind of... it. I guess if you compare it to something like, say, The Force Awakens, where Han Solo came back and is then killed. Again, I'm not saying she is killed. Um, that is not the case. But the way he comes in is integral to the story for much of the film, and then killed off in a big emotional moment. It's like this film does that in one third of the time, which is really unfortunate because it's like, great, she's back. Okay, she's getting involved. Okay, she's done for this story. It's very strange in that respect. It's almost like she was added in as a bit of a late notice addition and really you could have used her presence much later in the film in a much bigger, much louder way that would have been more meaningful to the audience. But it is what it is. Ultimately, I think this film is going to struggle to overcome comparisons to the original. Um, regardless of what you do, using that name brings with it a whole weight that this film is just not able to carry. And Green has created a film that, whilst it's engaging, is it, it's just lacking in individually and individuality and atmosphere. It relies too heavily on its third act, which, whilst it's great and the the visual effects are great and the the kind of their classic hits pulling from what happened in the original Exorcist are all there it it just it can only do so much heavy lifting by itself and those small moments of connection that I just talked about with Ellen Bernstein again can all also only do so much they can't single-handedly elevate this to becoming a, a great and worthy successor to that original film so to my verdict and my review was the exorcist believer stri uh, strives to break out from the shadow of its legendary originator david gordon green creates a tense supernatural experience whose strengths lie in its horror unfortunately the human drama underneath uh, underneath it all lacks originality and atmosphere and i so i gave it three out of five stars 
But I would love to know what you think if you have been out to see The Exorcist Believer. So do get in touch. You can find me on social media. I'm on all major platforms at Neil Vag. Get in touch. Let me know if you have seen it, if you're planning to see it, what your thoughts are on it, what your thoughts were about it, your the things you liked, the things you didn't. Let me know. I want to talk about it. So please do get in touch. And let's now talk about another horror movie, uh, which is now streaming on Shudder. VHS 1985 is currently streaming on Shudder. It's the second of the VHS franchise films to be a Shudder exclusive, and it is overall the sixth film in this very cool anthology franchise. If you have watched any of the other VHS movies, then you know pretty much what to expect. They take a group of different horror directors and writers. Each one of them works on a short segment of film, which is kind of working to a sort of overall theme, and they are tied together via some kind of uh, a slightly longer form story that maybe bookends and appears in between some of the different segments. So VHS 1985 follows last year's VHS 95. We've gone back a decade. Uh, We've gone into the 1980s to the year of my birth, I might add. Uh, And this uh, this film features uh, short stories directed by David Bruckner, Scott Derrickson, Gigi Saw Guerrero, Natasha Kamani and Mike Pete Nelson. Uh, I Again, I want to keep this spoiler light, so I don't want to go too heavily into detail on each of them, but I will just touch on the different stories. So you have Total Copy uh, slash Frame Narrative, which is the prologue. That's by David Bruckner. A narrator presents a documentary on a team of scientists at Starmer University studying a shape-shifting being they name Rory. That then takes you into No Wake, which was written and directed by Mike P. Nelson, which is about a group of friends who travel to an RV camp at a lake. We then go into Total Copy 1, which is the first interlude. We dip back into the Rory story. Then we go to God of Death, written and directed by Gigi Saul Guerrero. That is about a Mexican news crew and is, I think, probably my favourite in this collection. We come back for another interlude with part of the Rory story. Then we go into TKN OGD by Natasha Kamani, uh, in which a performance artist named Ada opens a show for a small audience in the theatre. She does a kind of virtual reality seance. It's, it's again, it's quite cool. Uh, back into another interlude with Rory. Then we have uh, Ambrosia, directed by Mike P. Nelson again. This is about a teenage girl named Ruth who is shown a recording of a family get-together. And I'll get to that one in a second. We have another interlude. We go into Dream Kill by Scott Derrickson, who you will know for films like The Black Phone and Doctor Strange. And then we we finish with an epilogue that goes back into total copy. So again, we go back into the Rory story, which is uh, by David Bruckner for for a little bit more story, story there. So, let's start with my favourite. So, uh, God of Death, Gigi Saul Guerrero. Mexican news crew preparing for a morning, morning broadcast. Uh, they, they're kind of complaining about the level of equipment that they have because it's all very cheap and cheerful, very 80s, very VHS. And uh, there is an earthquake that ensues. Some people get killed off. The building's kind of falling down around the camera crew. One of them is still around and still carrying the camera around as they're being rescued and absolute chaos ensues all around them in in an absolutely genius way. Uh, It is the kind of perfect example of where the VHS format works really, really well because particularly now where you're filming on an 80s kind of Betamax style tape, there is so little detail available in the image that once you put all the filtering on what what they've shot now they can put in some cgi that could probably look very very cheap if you were to watch it in high definition but because of all the filtering and the dirt and everything that's over the top it just looks it looks really it looks so incredibly convincing and so the scale of, of god of death is absolutely genius i mean the name kind of gives away that there's probably more going on there 
And that is the beauty with the different stories in VHS is that there's always some kind of twist. And here there is um, an Aztec god who may or may not be rather angry with the film crew. And it just, it's absolutely chaotic and it is VHS in the best way possible. And easily the strongest link in this in this series of films. Uh, equally, I think, great is the, the Dream Killer. So Scott Derrickson's section, which uh, features some kind of... It's, it's like a police... Uh, it's a police squad who receive videos of grisly murders, but seems to be receiving them before they happen. And they then learn how these tapes come to be and how these murders then get to happen. And again, there there is a twist there. But it's kind of classic Scott Derrickson. There is some... It's there is some dark humor in there, but it's it's also just it's very bleak. It's very bleak in general. Other than those two, this is probably not my favorite of the VHS films. Um, I haven't written a review for this on the website yet. I wanted to feature it on the podcast because I'm kind of getting you ready for spooky season now that we're in October, and um, I I want to start with my watch list of what I think you should be watching this year. Um, and this is definitely one that I think people should be watching just because it's new, it's it's horror, and it's I want to support this franchise because it's done some really original work. So the total frame uh, frame narrative that you have in, in in total copy, sorry, the frame narrative that you have uh, in in VHS eighty five is a really interesting story as well. So it's it's very much an eighties documentary. It's slightly found footage. And so you can kind of feel that something is building. There is a tension there. There we have this strange being known as Rory, and again, the the kind of the shape shifting nature of his of his body is is done really well through special effects that are, are hidden under all the layers of everything that is used to age the footage. And it it I don't know. There's something so eighties about it that it just. It, it's really well written in terms of the context of the the decade and the year that it's set in, um, which is really really fun to watch. Which is a strange thing to say given how the story ends up. Um, particularly again because I think similar to Creepshow, which is obviously another Shudder original, there you often can't necessarily correctly read the signposts as to what's happening or the signposts are pointing you to something that isn't necessarily exactly what is happening and so when the twist eventually comes it's not what you expect and that is both not the case and is the case with total copy because you will have an idea about where it's going that will will definitely happen but when you understand the reasoning why um, you'll understand why i'm laughing there are a couple of weaker links uh, so tkn ogd is interesting it's a very cool concept and i understand what they were going for this idea of looking at technology that is far more commonplace now uh, than it was in the 80s so you know using the term iphone but to describe something completely different um is is interesting and the graphical effects are really cool because they are it's, it's almost like watching the original tron um so again it works but it just <laughs> It doesn't quite land properly for me. There, there is again, there is a there is a twist there that is somewhat predictable, but it just it needs a little bit more development in order to land properly. So I, I think it's still good to watch, but it's it is not my favourite. And Ambrosia, which does have ties to uh, to No Wake, which they're both the Mike P Nelson sections of this film. Ambrosia is kind of the second half of a story. It uh, is 
kind of more shock value than the first half. The first half is playing on the kind of teen coming of age 80s movie in a way, but with a horror twist to it. And then when you come around to Ambrosia, it um, should round out the story nicely and has the potential to do something very interesting that would continue what had happened in, in, in that first bit. But it slightly squanders it in terms of more shock value, which is not unusual for a VHS film, but it just didn't quite land for me here. Which is a shame, but I mean, to have one weak link in a set of kind of six short stories is is nothing. A bad VHS movie is still a great horror movie, so there is there is nothing to take away from it. I would still give this three and a half stars as a as a review. Um, I don't want to say too much more because it's difficult to go into detail without spoiling anything, especially when the stories are so short. Production values are great across all of them. As I kind of talked about, there are CGI elements. There's plenty of practical effects which all look great for the setting in which they are being used. Sometimes they reflect what would be filmmaking at the time. Sometimes they are a little bit more contemporary and showing how you can be a bit more graphic about what was happening then through technology that we have now. So it's all it's all very well made and it all fits together really well, which is the best part. You don't feel like you're watching kind of six really disjointed stories it is um you know the connective tissue works and the kind of the way that the videotape will blur and will cut out and cut back to certain things and you'll see snippets of things in between all works really well to make it flow very very seamlessly which is exactly what you want from one of these films so it's not the best vhs film it's certainly not the worst vhs film either it is well worth a watch and well worth adding to your halloween 2023 watch list so please do you can check it out now it is streaming on shudder which means that now all that is left is for me to head over to comic book corner to tell you about two books that i am currently reading and completely obsessed with so over in comic book corner this week i have two books that i want to talk to you about one from dc and one from boom first of all is batman and robin number two which is available in comic book stores and on digital platforms as of yesterday as you're listening to this today as i'm recording it so this is once again written by joshua williamson published by dc comics it has artwork and colors by simone DeMeo, uh, letters by steve wands and main cover art which is absolutely stunning is also by DeMeo. synopsis for this issue is introducing shush who does she work for and how have they turned one of batman's greatest tools against him urban jungle continues as the father and son dynamic duo are on the deadly case but first damien must deal with his first day at school. <laughs> so I reviewed uh, the first issue of this back last month and I gave it, a, I think I gave it full five stars actually on, in my review over on the website because it was really great to see a bat book which is much more classic in its approach to storytelling. Whilst its artwork is incredibly, it's absolutely razor sharp and very, very anime inspired it's um it's a book which is 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 very very classic in its approach to kind of action adventure storytelling and that's something that i really wanted to pick up on again this month because i think it's it's really clear after reading two issues now that it's it's incredibly important to to williamson and to dc and you know to all of us as readers as well that batman and robin continues to feel different to all of the other gotham set books that are currently on comic book shelves you know if you look at the, the Detective Comics arc, which is still running on by Ram V, that's a kind of magnum opus opera. It's a very deep and very, very heavily structured and layered Batman story. 
and then in the pages of the main bat book you've got the gotham war uh, crossover which is is running between batman and catwoman which is again very very heavy in painting bruce as almost a kind of villain in the in the story or at least it, it was to begin with it's kind of on on a slightly different angle now that it's heading towards its final parts so i think with all that heaviness and all that darkness it's really important that dc has a bat book that kind of remembers that there is still some fun in the character particularly in the kind of batman and robin version of the title and that's exactly what this is which is i think really exciting and really fun to read we we pick up in issue two um right literally seconds after the end of issue one with batman falling surrounded by this swarm of bats and visually it plays exactly into what simone de Mayo is is amazing at which is visualizing these huge action beats um and you know they're able to stretch it out across several pages as we learn that in actual fact bruce has been doused with some kind of um some chemical or some compound that has made him basically look like lunch to these bats which is why they're attracted to him and following him and trying to eat him alive and again it plays in really well to both the sense of pacing that Williamson is trying to create with the book but also the artwork that uh, Simone de Mayo has has been able to craft and the kind of the consequence of all that is that Batman is then going to have to lie low for a little while because you know he is bat lunch (laughs) as it were and that for many reasons allows the book to continue to just make sure that audiences know that its mission statement in that title you know batman and robin is exactly how the book will be carried out because batman takes kind of a sidestep and so damien takes center stage for most of the rest of the book and it's some of the best work in it as well i mean you have that huge action sequence which is amazing but then you get a really great father and son moment which actually i think is some of the best father-son writing we've seen for Bruce and Damien in a very, very long time. Uh, but that aside, it then leads into this wonderful moment where where Damien has to go to school. He has We've not seen this before in kind of mainstream comics. And so here he is, having his first day at Gotham High. And you get this wonderful moment where this kind of cool kid, shades on, hair swept, is stood on the, the steps of this school and saying, I faced down literal gods. And then he has to enter high school. And of course, Damien being Damien and the son of Bruce Wayne, he's an instant celebrity, attracts bullies, gets into a fight, skips school and goes off to fight crime because that's what he would do. And so it works on so many on so many different levels because firstly, it's great Damien characterization. It's also funny and kind of adds to that kind of action adventure style storytelling that is in this book without ever taking away from the gravitas of the story, which is what I think is most important. It feels like sometimes with DC, action-adventure is almost seen, not as a dirty word, that's what I wanted to say, but it's, it's, that's not, you know, it's not strictly true, it's not that they don't have any fun books. There are plenty of fun DC books. But sometimes mainstream continuity gets so bogged down in events and big stories that it, it's, there's less room for the fun, and, and so that's really what this adds it gives Damien fans something to absolutely sink their teeth into but it also proves that this book really is Batman and Robin it's not a Batman with Robin it's not Robin with Batman there is an equal measure of both characters in the story there's an equal measure of both characters in this book there's an equal measure in the previous issue as well and that's really great to see this isn't an imbalanced version of the story it seems so far like this is a true Batman and Robin story and then you get this really wonderful setup and handoff between writer and artist. So when Damien goes to school, you know, there is dialogue, there's exposition there. There's You get the moment on the steps with the I-faced literal gods. And there is there is story set up there. And then it hands itself off to a big moment like Damien getting into a fight with a bully, 
which again plays to Simone de, uh, Simone de Mayo's strength of action, followed by this really sweeping panel of him off back in his Robin suit fighting crime. And there's a lot of these moments where heavy dialogue and heavy setup from Williamson leads into a big moment from uh, Di Mayo where he, he gets to uh, render these really huge moments, which is it's just very, very cool. And there's a wonderful synergy between writing and art there, which I really appreciate. And then you get to uh, just introduce this new villain, Shush, as well, who, you know, as the name sounds, is a kind of play on Hush. And there are some visual cues that are similar between the two characters, but we really don't know anything more about her yet other than it's not one of the classic villains this is something new for a new story in a new era which is very very exciting and that is why in my review which you can read on the website i gave this book four stars and i said batman and robin has really hit its stride with an intriguing new villain and some of the best father-son dynamics we've seen williamson and DeMeo are certainly making a great first impression with this series so please do go check out batman and robin you can pick up issues one and two now wherever you buy your comic books and finally this week, I want to talk to you about the third issue of a very cool limited series that is currently publishing from Image Comics, which is called The Cull. So The Cull is written by Kelly Thompson and published by Image Comics. Uh, artwork and colours are by Mattia De... I'm going to have... Bear with me. Artwork and colours are... Mattia De Ulis. So finally this week, I want to talk to you about the third issue of a six-part series from Image Comics, which is an absolute revelation. So this book is written by Kelly Thompson, artwork and colours are by Mattia de Ulis, and letters are by Hassan Otsmain Elhau. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, main cover art is also by de Ulis. Uh, it, so issues one and two have been available for a few weeks now. Issue three drops today as you are watching or listening to this. This book is uh it's just brilliant it is just brilliant i have given five stars to all three issues so far you can read my reviews of all three over on the website uh, issue three review has just dropped or will be dropping later today actually if you're watching this podcast first thing in the morning you're you're hearing it first before it's out uh, the the synopsis for this issue is well it wasn't sentient mushrooms was it better or worse than that you decide also run <laughs> So this book is about um, a group of friends who um, have... So in the first issue, uh, we meet Cleo. Cleo, uh, I'm going to go slightly into spoilers for issue one and two here. Cleo is a character whose younger brother has disappeared. He is missing and she is really feeling the consequences of that. And so she and her friends sneak out in the middle of the night under the kind of auspices of going to shoot a short film before they all go off to college uh, and they head down to this place called Blackwater Beach and what they find there which is presumably where the brother went missing what they actually find there is a cave that when they pass through it takes them to some sort of alternate universe alternate earth alien land and what you saw in issue one was them discover it in issue two you saw them take their first steps into it and issue two ended with them meeting the first major life form who exists in this strange alien landscape and so this issue we're dealing with first contact as it were so technically we have now reached the halfway point in this series uh, halfway through this issue is bang on halfway through the series with only two issues left it, it's really time for this series to kind of kick into high gear and it does that through these characters interactions with with this particular character that they meet in this strange world and the impact that this world has on them um 
so issue three really zones in on those character interactions we kind of we've seen the scale of the world around them in issue two so now it's it's time to kind of focus in a little bit and and get some i don't want to say exposition because that makes it sound like it's really slavish which it's not it, it's very very exciting it's very very cool what happens um also traumatizing it's just it's time to to get to the meat and meat of the story saying meat and bones of the story but we kind of we've done the bones this is the meat and with that in mind it's really the character of wade who comes to the fore in this issue so Cleo, who is the kind of our way in in issue one, has taken a bit of a back seat, and it's Wade who who ended the last issue face to face with this creature, who who steps up and is the one who she is the one who starts this face to face interaction and and tries to speak with this with this creature. Um, it's really easy to forget that all these characters are kind of 17, 18 years old. You know, they've not gone to this land on some organised scientific expedition. They have stumbled their way in. And that's something that Kelly Thompson has really held on to incredibly well across all three issues. And she never loses sight of that even here. So even with everything that's going on around them, the way that the dialogue and the the way that each of these characters acts has a really strong underpinning of their kind of, with their, their their whole bewilderment and their naivete at the situation that they've ended up in. And even though Wade does this amazing job of trying to communicate with this with this creature, you still are never able to forget when you're reading the book that they are teenagers who have not got a clue and have just fallen into this situation. And something which struck me while I was reading issue three was just how little expectation I have when I open this book now. So um, it's it's really difficult to kind of articulate, but normally when i go into a book particularly when i've read a kind of synopsis i have an idea about what i'm expecting to happen and particularly when you're reading something like this which is sci-fi horror you and you've kind of got the setup from issues one and two it's easy to kind of think oh i think it's going to go here in issue three or i think this is going to happen or, or this character is going to do this but i don't do that here somehow thompson has kind of lulled me into abandoning all of that speculation and instead i come into each issue of the cull with a really open mind which is not kind of like me <laughs> um i guess i read so much that's ongoing and forever ongoing and forever repeating that um i just always have an idea about what i think is going to happen next and so not having that is both incredibly exciting and also in a way kind of reflects the journey of the characters in the story as well because i'm sort of exploring this world as as they are at the same time which is which is really cool and i give absolutely mad props for that and yes there are it kind of plot points that i hinted at something in my review of issue two which did kind of come to pass in issue three but it did it in a totally different way to what i could have even dreamed of in my wildest imagination when i was writing my review of issue two um and so I don't. Yeah, I nearly said something. I don't want to spoil it. So let's talk about artwork for a minute. Uh, all of it, everything, everything that Thompson does, just so perfectly tees up Mattia Dioulis's uh, artwork. So if you if you read my reviews of issue one and two, I mean the, the artwork is almost photorealist. There is so much detail, so much depth, and so much fine, just tiny tiny little details that it is an absolute work of art. And so you know, in issue one, we got to get used to that with characters kind of in this nighttime setting as they were sneaking out of the house um and then in issue two we were seeing the scale and scope of this world and now it's all about digging into the characters in that world and what that means and what the impact of the world has and does to our characters which kind of does change them visually i'm saying this without saying too much um 
I, I, it all looks incredible, and honestly, I think this is probably the single best-looking book of 2023, which is no small thing to say. I think this deserves some Eisner nominations when, when all is said and done next year. Um, I, yeah, as I keep saying, I want to avoid spoilers so badly, but I do need to touch on a couple more things. Uh, the the way that the world interacts with the characters is very much based on the individuality of all of them and not do, they don't just have an individual look which is defined in the artwork but they have such individual voices which Thompson has defined through the writing as well and no aspect of what happens in this story isn't perfectly rooted into that which is very very cool and again very very different it's very exciting um, and now with the end of issue three we catch up to a moment that we saw full circle in issue one which is very exciting going into the final two issues it seems like we've kind of hit another jumping off point which could really explode the story even more and this is already a huge story i think i've said enough um so the, I, my verdict in my review when you get to read it is the cull lands its third five-star review in as many months the series is unparalleled in its incredible storytelling and delicious artwork with just two issues to go it seems like we may be entering the end game and i cannot wait to see what happens next five stars again please go read it. So as of today, you can pick up issues one to three. It's a six issue series. So you can pick up the first half of the story now either in comic book stores or on digital platforms. So please, 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 please do go and read The Cull. It's absolutely brilliant. And tell the creators how much you love it once you've read it as well. Tell Image Comics how much you've loved it because this is the kind of creator-owned series that we should be getting more of from our indie publishers. So please continue this. And that's it for this episode. I want to remind you of a couple of things that are coming up. So James has just interviewed uh, Emma Tammy, who is the director of the upcoming uh, Five Nights at Freddy's movie, which is coming out in a couple of weeks' time. You'll be able to hear his uh, his interview with Emma very, very soon in a special little podcast about Five Nights at Freddy's. We've got the premiere of Hammer Films' brand new Dr. Jekyll movie starring Eddie Izzard. You can watch the trailer for that over on the website now. We'll be heading to the world premiere of that tonight as this podcast is releasing. So look out for some coverage on that very, very soon. We've also just started a TikTok. I don't know why swore i would never download it but i wanted to make sure that we didn't lose the username in case someone tried to steal it out from under us so we do now have a tiktok so please add that to the number of social platforms that you can follow us on so twitter instagram tiktok facebook whatever it is you can find us at get your comic on so please do and wherever you are listening to this podcast please do uh, subscribe like thumbs up leave a review tell us what you think and make sure that you spread the word so that people are listening to what we are putting out there And all that leaves me to say is stay safe, stay well, and I will see you next time.